Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. We are still on summer hiatus, but we wanted to rebroadcast our conversation with Jake Grimbach from earlier this year because his book, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics, is out now from Princeton University Press. We got an advanced copy of the book at the beginning of the year and had Jake on the show back in February to talk about the ways that national parties and national political identity is trickling down to the state and local level and the impacts that's having on policymaking and political polarization. This is a really great book. I highly encourage you to pick it up from Princeton University Press or wherever you get your books. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Jake Grimbach. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Bergman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Jake Grumbach, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and author of the forthcoming book, Laboratories Against Democracy, which will be out from Princeton University Press later this year, and really takes a close examination at some of the myths surrounding federalism and state politics, two of the topics that we like to talk about on the show. So glad to have Jake with us today to talk more about them. I'm especially glad to bring Jake on to congratulate him on the book. And he was recently notified that he would be getting tenure and promotion at the University of Washington. So it's just really fantastic. And we have a sneak peek of the book. And it's so well written. It's clear. It's elucidating of many of the trends that we're seeing across the United States And it speaks to that question of whether all politics is local. And I think that Jake does really a good job of pinpointing the ways in which we need to think more critically about that and how the way that the parties are working right now in this particular moment in a federalist governmental setup, we are perhaps seeing trends that were not intended by the founders or really by anybody else, you know, maybe in the past, you know, before 20 or 30 years from now. What Jake's done here that I think is really important is try to reassess federalism and state politics, how we think about state politics in terms of, in the context of greater polarization between the Mm -hmm. parties and what that might mean. And I see it in a tradition of trying to understand federalism at a given point in time, because federalism, while built into the Constitution, obviously, and I'm sure when you teach Introduction to American Politics, like when I teach it, it is a prominent part of the course. It is the primary sort of constitutional structure for our government, but it changes over time. Mm -hmm. It changes as political elites try to do different things and use state, national, and government in different ways. And it changes as court decisions reassess 
the Constitution, in particular the Commerce Clause, in terms of what state and local governments can do. And Candace, I mentioned to you before, I came across an article years and years ago, this is from 1982, that listed 326 metaphors that had been used in the literature to try to capture federalism at different times and in different kinds of policy areas. It is an elusive concept. It's a challenging one to get a handle on. I really commend Jake for the work he's done here in trying to get a hold of it today in uh, contemporary politics. When I teach my students, you know, we're teaching about like separation of powers, checks and balances and federalism, all kinds of ways that power and resources are divided across different levels of governance and across different bodies of governance to ensure that power does not get consolidated. Exactly. And what we're seeing actually is that federalism is kind of not doing the thing that people intended for it to do because of the nationalization of political parties and their uh, kind of trickling down from national to state politics rather than what was intended of a trickle-up process where states do a lot of the work and innovation and trying different policies. And then if it works and we can spread it across the states and even to the national government, we're not seeing that anymore. We're kind of seeing these other weird trends. States and state-level politicians are diving into issues that have little to nothing to do with the well-being of their states. Yeah, if I had returned to your framing for a minute, because I think it's really important the way you set that up. Federalism, separation of powers were established to fragment power. Mm -hmm. That was the point of them. They were the right. great protection, actually, in the constitutional design. And the compromise that was made was that they were agreeing to a stronger national government with the understanding that that power would be fragmented and would be checked by not only the other branches of government, which everybody knows is a way of fragmenting power, but through federalism as well. And that what is so interesting about some of what Candace has just outlined and then what Jake goes into in greater detail in the book in a variety of ways is that you're not really seeing this fragmentation. Instead, you're seeing a kind of centralization of power and the centralization is coming through political parties. And this is not unlike discussions that we've had about how separation of powers has been changed because mm -hmm. of the uh, depolarization of the parties and the greater homogeneity of the parties, where people now sometimes refer to, right, as a separation of parties as opposed to a separation of powers. Because mm -hmm. when one party controls the Congress and the party controls the presidency as well, they're not confronting each other as separate branches, but rather cooperating together as the same political party. And that's what we're seeing here as well. And he's showing it in a whole variety of ways. The other thing that I think is important about this book is that it kind of checks liberals who came to love federalism and stop worrying about states' rights. So historically, we think about states' rights as racist rhetoric and a racist strategy for conservatives. And when Congress either stop working or is ceded more to Republicans, then, you know, liberals and Democrats say like, well, at least we have federalism and we can turn to the states. But ultimately, right, the other side of that is that, as you were talking about earlier, Michael, is that 
red Republican controlled states are actually becoming more illiberal and blue states are, you know, either kind of staying where they are or trying to become more progressive. So even at the state level, we see polarization in levels of democracy as well. Yeah, and it really kind of gets to that laboratories against democracy. We will certainly touch on that more, but I think let's go now to the interview with Jake Grumbach. Jake Grumbach, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jenna. Excited to talk with you about your forthcoming book, Laboratories Against Democracy. There's a lot to unpack here, but I thought maybe we could just start with a bit of the origin story. You note in the book that there were a lot of people saying that they were thankful for federalism in the Trump era, but you maybe were skeptical of that or just you saw some some questions there, some deeper explorations if you had. Absolutely. As I was completing grad school in the Trump era and uh, transitioning to the book, it became clear that federalism was just so central to our current sort of crisis of American democracy. And it goes much broader than policy polarization in, for example, health policy between states. The thing you opened with, Jenna, I think is a great question where we saw after the 2016 election, all sorts of commentators from never Trump conservatives to people on the left saying, isn't it great that we have these institutions that decentralize authority in the U.S.? Federalism that puts, for example, election administration and all sorts of police powers at the state level rather than in the White House or in Washington, D.C. And I think that's actually quite uncertain, but I think that's the wrong conclusion to draw from this period. We'll get into some of the reasons why that is, but I want to pull out one other kind of introductory thing, and that is the difference between federalism and state politics. I think the terms are perhaps used interchangeably sometimes, so can you help us understand what the difference is there? I find that so important. So again, in when you study American politics within political science as a discipline, there are two little organizational fields within it. One is called state politics and one is called federalism. And they're very related. So the point of federalism in the U.S. Constitution and overall is that states and the federal government each have separate constitutional authority that they're not meant to encroach on each other. The U.S. also has an especially decentralized form of federalism, even compared to other federal constitutions in Mexico, India, Switzerland, Germany, and elsewhere. The U.S. puts a lot of important authority at the lower level units, the state level. So the distinction between, I think, state politics and federalism scholarship is state politics on the one hand has been hugely innovative over the past 20 years or so, but is really focused on applying theories to different states and state governments to be able to compare and contrast and sort of test theories. But what's really happening in the age of the nationalization of the political parties I talk about is that actually there are two more coordinated national partisan teams or networks than before that really try to exploit advantages at all levels. So the shift and conservative gains in the states in part comes out of 
national conservative groups shifting their focus to the state level over recent decades. So that interplay between the national and state levels, as well as across states horizontally, those sorts of feedbacks and interplay, I think, is really crucial. And thinking fundamentally about the collision of now these new nationalized parties with the pre-existing decentralized institutions of American federalism. So parties are now national, but our institutions are still very much not. That's something new, right? In the, the history of American politics, I know you go through like the different eras of federalist thinkers, the Madisonian era, and of course the Brandeis era, which is where laboratories of democracy comes from. So walk us through that history and sort of how we got to this place. In many sort of, we can take the case of U.S. democracy and democratic institutions like voting rights and districting and, you know, Jim Crow or even slavery as a sort of area case on this. But it's clear that state and local government, especially state government, has been hugely important for shaping policy and democracy. For most of U.S. history, it was more important as a policymaking level than the national government. And over the long term, policymaking became increasingly done at the national level uh, through wars, technological change, and industrialization, so many more reasons. But really clearly now we have after over a century and a half of dominant state level, you had the long New Deal and civil rights period of the 1930s through the 1970s, which sort of created national baselines on areas like health policy with Medicare and Medicaid and economic sort of safety net stuff, social security, minimum wage, and so many other policies at the national level, plus the national government coming in to end Jim Crow through Brown v. Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, standardizing sort of civil rights policy across the states. No longer would you have this huge divergence between northern and southern states. And that took a long time to and Jim Crow, as Rob Mickey shows in Pass Out of Dixie, some states really are clinging to Jim Crow racial hierarchy in their elections and things through the 70s. But the point is, that was a long period of standardization. But then, as many American politics scholars have showed, the national government then polarized. Congress polarized. Divided government between the president and Congress became more frequent. And national policymaking really slowed down. Important policies came less frequently out of the national government. And what that meant is that people who wanted to see their vision implemented in government, whether on the left or the right, focused their sites. They venue shifted to the state level, put in more resources into the state level. And the effect of that was is the divergence in policy between the states. And that's really kicked up in the 2000s, where now compared to the post-civil rights period and after, for example, Roe v. Wade legalizes abortion throughout the country and things like that, we're now seeing a divergence between states that we haven't seen since that sort of pre-civil rights period. And so that is policies being fundamentally or to some degree different from one state to another. Is that right? That's exactly right. And you see that in some clear examples, like some states did not expand Medicaid. Many Republican states did not expand Medicaid. Some states did. That's hugely important for people's ability to have health insurance and has caused tens of thousands of preventable deaths due to that particular state policy choice, right? As opposed to the implementation of Medicaid following the 1960s, where Arizona doesn't establish its own Medicaid program for a long time, but essentially every other state very quickly 
gets on Medicaid. This is a different period where the Affordable Care Act, by providing Medicaid expansion, did not standardize states. It actually increased their divergence. That's really due to a Supreme Court case that allowed states to reject Medicaid. But this is now also happening on democratic institutions themselves, like voting rights, legislative districting, and sort of the policies around counting votes. You mentioned a little bit ago that politicians from the left or the right who were looking to enact these policy changes started increasingly looking to the states. And I this is framed, at least in the current era, as being very much a, a more right-leaning thing, something that you know Republicans are doing, especially on these issues of democracy. I wonder to what extent this is a left and a right thing, or that you know one party may be doing it more than the other. Absolutely, it's hard to say. So, because Republican goals are often to block expansions to the social safety net or the welfare state and things like that, it's hard to know like how much progress one coalition has made and when. The coalitions have different goals around expansion or contracting things. But I will say it's very clear that, yeah, there have been major changes from sort of liberal groups and the Democratic Party in blue states. So thinking about during the George W. Bush administration, environmentalists and climate activists really seeing not going to get much done at the national level with a Republican former oil executive at the helm, it's probably a good idea to move to setting fuel efficiency standards and cap and trade on the West Coast or in the Northeast states. And that was quite impactful and successful. Without federalism, the U.S. would probably be a bit farther on its climate policy. But even so, there were major progressive gains in coastal states on environmental policy in the 2000s, for example. But then it is true that the conservative wave of policymaking, once states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio became sort of red states, North Carolina as well, both on in terms of policies like labor policy, passing right to work laws and limiting the ability of labor unions to organize, which has been hugely consequential in many ways, plus abortion restrictions that have been very powerful. The Texas abortion law is probably the biggest, most groundbreaking one yet, but there's been really since the 1990s, there's been huge restrictions on reproductive rights in red states, especially. Then the probably the biggest deal I would say now are these democratic institutions where certainly you have seen blue states and divided states expand access to voting and produce fair districting. But that's less of a story, I think, than states engaging in democratic backsliding and making it for the first time since again, in the post-civil rights era, taking major steps to make it more difficult to vote and to make districts unfair in partisan terms at record levels. Those are really new and do suggest that sort of this, the conservative movement has been especially, I guess, forward pushing when it comes to state level changes. I want to talk for a second about criminal justice issues. I I was thinking as you've been describing this, it seems like criminal justice is maybe the outlier here, or there's maybe a different set of dynamics at play. You know, for example, in the tough on crime era, we saw the proliferation of three strikes across red states and blue states. So I don't know if we thought of them that way back then. And we're seeing it in the modern era with actions around policing. It seems like there's something different going on when it comes to issues of criminal justice. Absolutely. Compared to those other policy areas like health policy, environmental policy, gun control and gun rights and reproductive rights, 
all of those areas, labor laws and taxation of the wealthy, all these things have been really polarizing across states where red states are making their policies more conservative in those areas and blue states more liberal in those areas. But one unique thing is criminal justice, where you actually saw red and blue states sort of hand in hand, and the federal government, regardless of which party controlled it, really, since the 70s, and especially that tough on crime 90s era, you saw the proliferation of those sorts of laws that contributed to mass incarceration and sort of authoritarian policing that we've heard so much about in recent years uh, due to activists from Black Lives Matter and other social movements. So that has been unique. But we're in a really uncertain moment. So the post-George Floyd murder, Black Lives Matter activism, that protest movement in 2020 was up there with the most widespread social movements in terms of participation in U.S. history. So that was a major change that produced a ton of uncertainty, how maybe now blue states would actually diverge from red states and sort of engage in decarceration policies, policing reforms, and things like that. I think, pun intended, the jury's still out on that. But I would say the general trend is continuity rather than change in terms of criminal justice policy, where there's actually been some slight decarceration in red states, too, due to a sort of far-right libertarian anti-statist movement, too, is one thing. But we thought blue states like California and Minnesota would pursue pretty serious criminal justice reforms. And I think it's been more limited than some have expected. And we've seen how the mass politics and sort of media coverage around race, criminal justice, crime has really changed since 2020. So that may be a reason why we may not see much divergence uh, between states on criminal justice, Mm -hmm. despite this social movement. But the point there is that there are a number of reasons why we didn't see that divergence, one of which is the political power at the state and local level of police departments and police unions, which is relatively unique. So we've seen many cases of often reformist blue mayors or blue governors coming in with an agenda to reform criminal justice in their city or state, and then not quite be able to. So Bill de Blasio in New York City is a clear example of this, who campaigned on these reforms, and then there was not much change. So again, remains to be seen. Keep an eye out on, you know, the 2020s, we may see some change. The other thing I wonder if it's wrapped up here is the sort of representation of state officials. There's a fascinating table or chart, but you show in your book how candidates or local office holders at the state level are actually wealthier and less diverse than people who hold national office. So can you talk more about those dynamics? Yeah. So uh, that goes back again to some of those classic sort of mainstream theories of the virtues of federalism. So one of which is that, you know, you often hear politicians say this, like, as opposed to those fat cats in Washington, I'm here like with this community in my state here, right? And when you ask ordinary voters, they actually will say that too. My state government's great. The stupid Congress in DC is terrible. That's a classic framework in mass politics and political appeals. But uh, what you actually see is that the local level and the state level actually has more political inequality within its participation and 
to some extent, it's sort of descriptive representation. But really importantly, ordinary voters know a lot less about the state and local level. It requires much more attention, which means that it tends to be people who are more likely to be older, whiter, own homes and have more income and wealth are the ones who disproportionately participate at these lower levels of politics. In my book, I show that this is true with respect to campaign finance, the people who are donating to politicians at the national versus state level, that donors to state level politicians are whiter, are wealthier than donors who donate in presidential or congressional elections, right? And then again, it's really important to think about where, especially with the decline of state and local journalism and the rise of sort of national cable news and internet news that's really focused on national conflict, people know the most about presidential elections and these big deal, for example, Senate races. Even though Donald Trump presented a lot of challenges to the American political system, but it is clear that people generally through this time period know what these presidential candidates stand for. Whereas in a state level, state legislative primary election, you know, I'm a professor of political science, and it's actually quite hard to know who in a state legislative primary has my sort of policy agenda in mind compared to, I certainly know the difference between all of these. I know the difference between Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, and Donald Trump. You know, like I know the difference between Michael Bennett and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and all these people, you know. So that's a crucial thing where all of that sort of information asymmetry further allows people who have resources and organizations like businesses that have resources like money to spend and have the capacity to lobby at lower levels over complicated issues, it gives them an advantage. The other thing that is kind of popular to talk about these days is the prospect for the next civil war. And I know that's not the question you're taking up or your area of expertise, but I do wonder if there are things that thinking about these trends in federalism can tell us about whether we are likely to continue to see this further split between red states and blue states, red America, blue America, as is so often described in the media and the punditry. Yeah, that's a really important question. I would say there's a few things that sort of put wrinkles in that idea. One is that while there are red states and blue states, there are huge numbers of red people in blue states and blue people in red states. So with national political conflict, that really does matter, where within North Carolina, you have a state that famously went red, has restricted voting access, has produced record-setting gerrymandered maps and things like that, but has these blue cities like around what they call the Research Triangle in North Carolina. That really matters. And because of those dynamics, you're not going to see a civil war between states in the way the U.S. civil war was. And I do not think civil war in a real sense is likely, but I do think there's two potential ways this might happen. One is the sort of argument that some make that there's actually a lot of similarities between previous eras where the U.S. Constitution does allow quite broad leeway for state governments to restrict the right to vote, to gerrymander, to even potentially subvert presidential elections in the Electoral College. Like the Constitution is expansive. The Senate 
out of the constitution is now produces huge malapportionment by population. So really it's actually these constitutional institutions are producing this crisis in some ways. But then there's this other side of the argument that currently the way politics is so nationalized where you see, for example, in debates around critical race theory that are happening in local school boards. This is coming down from national level political conflict, not bubbling up from whatever is going on in the particular locality. The places that are passing anti-critical race theory bills, for example, in state legislatures or from school boards and things like that are not places that have experienced disproportionate rapid rise in critical race theory, right? There's a huge amount of uncertainty with that national level conflict, what it means if For example, some state legislatures do subvert the 2024 presidential election. There could be a true constitutional crisis that produces all sorts of forms of intermittent partisan violence. You argue that some of the way forward here, particularly around these issues of democracy, is to kind of shift some of that power back upward that has trickled down to the states. Tell us more about that. Yeah, an implication of... The analysis of my book is that when coalitions that are supportive of democratic institutions like the expansive right to vote, fair districting, things like that, when they do take national power, you should really use it to standardize national standards across states and democratic institutions. That's very crucial. And historically, you see this pattern. Threats to American democracy have tended to be State legislatures have been the main sort of backsliders or institutions that hold back democracy, whether it's through allowing slavery, Jim Crow, disenfranchisement, even mass incarceration, now current threats to uh, voting rights and gerrymandering and so forth and election subversion. It's been the Supreme Court that has largely enabled these state legislatures. And then it's been when they step up, Congress has been the one to stop state legislatures from doing that. So Congress has tended to not actively backslide, but they often have this sin of uh, omission where they don't actually organize to pass national policy to stop state legislative backsliding on democratic institutions. So I think that's an important implication. And then also just in a way broader sense, All of those theories of federalism being great for policy innovation and so forth, policy learning, bringing people closer to their elected officials, depolarizing politics nationally, all of those things don't appear to apply anymore in this era of highly nationalized, polarized parties and national media and all of this. Those don't seem to apply anymore. And and one maybe concrete way this also plays out is by federalizing elections. What might that look like? Right. So there's been some cool proposals from people like one of my colleagues, Charlotte Hill and Lee Drutman, and among others on how could the U.S. create, for example, a, a true national elections agency that would help standardize election and election administration across states and counties. I think this is important. So again, coming back to the very beginning where a lot of people were thankful for federalism under Trump because they said, great, now Trump can't capture all 50 state election administrations and all these county administrators and things, right? It's such great insurance against like a would-be autocrat, people argued. But the flip side of that, that I think is underemphasized, and all of this is Again, quite uncertain. We don't have a bunch of experiments on counterfactual U.S.s, but 
Really importantly, it's that this sort of politics I've described at the state level, highly unequal politics, restrictions on democracy, and so forth, actually propelled a would-be autocrat to national power, right? So states administer elections from local dog catcher up to president of the U.S. So when states backslide on democracy, it affects the entire political system. So that's the flip side of having this decentralization is over the past couple decades, you've seen the entrenchment of anti-democratic coalitions in part of the system. And some of these key states that I observe really backsliding on democratic institutions, and that helped propel national governance to threatening democracy itself. So that's the flip side. So of course, when you have a would-be autocrat in national power, yes, you absolutely want decentralization, but you have to think about how decentralization helps empower that national autocrat in the first place. So that's why I think a national election agency, as well as all the sort of bills being discussed in the Democratic Senate and Congress are quite important for standardizing and protecting democratic institutions. That is a good place to leave things, I think. Jake, thank you so much for your work in this book. I hope folks will check it out. There's a lot to think about, uh, especially for people who care as deeply about democracy, as I know our listeners do. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jenna. Well, Jenna, that was a terrific interview, really interesting. I want to pick up on something Jake was uh, talking about having to do with states as laboratories of democracy, because, you know, this has always been something that we've held out as one of the real strengths of federalism. The idea that one state can try something out and other states can kind of see what's happening and learn from it and apply it to their own circumstances. So, you know, uh, some of the Western states uh, legalized marijuana, right? And other states sat back, they waited to see what happened. They saw that there were lots of revenues coming in. They saw that the social structure in the states didn't fall apart. And then you saw a lot of other states starting to follow them. And in political science, there's a kind of research tradition uh, often referred to as diffusion research that picks up on this. And it looks at how policies might start in one state, uh, maybe a state with a lot of resources or that tends to be highly innovative or whatever the case may be. And then other states sort of follow and you can track these patterns of following. And what Jake identifies, I think really quite importantly, is that pattern is probably breaking down. But I think what we're seeing here is that there is a policy diffusion. It's just not necessarily diffusion of high quality ideas. I think what states are learning from each other, especially red states, are they're learning how much inequality people are willing to put up with. Right. So like, uh, let's test the tolerance of our public's willingness to deal with not excellent policy, like not expanding Medicaid, for example. And I think that they're also learning to see, wanting to see how the Supreme Court will deal with it. So I think that people, for example, are looking really closely at Texas's bounty on abortion law. When we talk about diffusion, we tend to think about it like it has a very positive connotation. And so what we're seeing is that there is diffusion. It just doesn't matter if the idea is good. It just matters if someone from your team is doing it, whether it's good or not. Right, exactly. It's not a diffusion. It's not a laboratories of democracy where states are looking to see what works well in terms of good policy. It's become much more what will be tolerated politically. How far can we go? And let's recognize as well that on the Republican side in particular, they've put in 
you know, sort of centralized institutions to ensure that this happens. Uh, the most important of them is ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a very conservative, Koch-funded institution that writes model legislation, as you were referring to at the beginning, Candace, but just to, just to put a bow on it, that this is coming out of institutions designed to do exactly that. But you just can't overstate the extent to which Democrats have neglected the states. And you mentioned North Carolina before, and uh, Jake has a really nice section in his book on North Carolina about how North Carolina policy turned distinctly to the right and distinctly undemocratic in some ways. And that all traces back to the 2010 election, as do so many of the Democrats' problems. Because in neglecting state politics, they neglected the level of government that makes the rules governing elections and governing so much of our politics. But I will say that there's something to be said about standardizing across the states concerning basic rights. Rights, yeah. And so I think that focusing on the national government has, I mean, like there's two kind of ears, right? Like reconstruction and then like civil rights. Oh yeah, in the New Deal where looking to the federal government, all the stars have to align. Congress, SCOTUS, the White House, they, you know, they all have to align. But in those times, we've seen where federal policies serve to standardize rights and access to, you know, high quality policy. And so, I mean, the thing is, is that we do need that, right? Mm -hmm. That it's, it is on some level unfair to walk across state lines if you want more rights. So I don't think we disagree on this yeah, at all. Okay. I, mean, I, I think that Democrats have recognized that in order to ensure constitutional protections across the board, they needed to turn to the national level. Yeah, Because the states, especially in the South during civil rights in particular, were going to deny them these rights. Kind of related, but maybe a, a little bit of a pivot, is that one of the things that Jake shows is that, you know, of all of the ways that there are lots of polarization in these nationally coordinated parties, the one area where we see kind of bipartisanship has been and continues to be around issues of crime, which is largely a racialized policy. For all of the kind of fights that Democrats and Republicans have at every level of government, it seems like the one area where everyone can agree is who can be tough on crime and everyone wants to out-tough their competitor. We do see some change, especially in light of the past several years of Black Lives Matter, but it's not like a divergent split in the way that we've seen other significant areas of policy. Yep. That was such an interesting finding, I thought, that he had there, that that was the only area. I mean, it is also, I think, maybe the only area during the Trump administration where there was any bipartisan cooperation, and that was on the criminal justice bill mm -hmm. that Jared was involved in. That moved things in a somewhat more progressive direction, actually, or at least loosened things up somewhat. Yeah. One other thing that stood out to me that Jake mentioned was about the fact that 
state level governments are not necessarily more representative of the constituents, even yeah. though they are closer, right? So like the whole, you know, if we're going to sell federalism to somebody, it would be so that representatives are closer to their people and that they can produce customized policies. But in this moment, we're not seeing that. We're seeing that state representatives are richer, wider, and more out of touch with their constituents, and that they're not customizing because they just look to ALEC or look to the national parties instead of focusing on what exactly it is that their constituents need of them. Yes. And he didn't even really go into the extent to which some state legislatures are gerrymandered in ways that also undercut representation pretty dramatically. Right. So that component is, I think, really well highlighted in the conversation around democratic backsliding. And my home state of North Carolina, which I love so much, is a prime suspect of democratic backsliding. And I thought that this conversation around that was so important because even though we tend to talk about whether the United States of America is a democracy, Jake's work shows that there are variations across the states and across time concerning the extent to which they could be characterized as democratic. And again, we see that states have learned from North Carolina what could be done, what could be tolerated, and what is allowed to be implemented, particularly around voting and gerrymandering. Yeah, yeah. I was glad he focused on North Carolina and produced some nice graphics on it, too. I, I have often since 2010, used North Carolina in my teaching as an example to students of how elections matter. Because that 2010 election in North Carolina, I believe, went over to the Republicans by maybe one or two seats at best. And Mm -hmm. after that election, you saw very dramatic change in public policy. And one reason that I find that such a nice example is, and this speaks directly to Jake's work as well, It's not like there was a massive change in public opinion. North Carolina brings to light and characterizes and illustrates so much of what Jake helps us to understand about what's going on nationally. Obviously, we can talk ad nauseum about this book. It has a lot of really important contributions to our understanding of state politics, of democratic backsliding, of parties, federalism, But also, I guess I have to say that I will update and be more careful about when and how I sling around the old adage that all politics is local. I'll be more circumspect about how I use that phrase and the extent to which it is describing our political reality. So with that, I'll say... Thank you, Jenna, for the excellent interview. Thanks to Jake for giving us an early peek of his book, and congratulations on tenure. I'm Candace Watts-Smith for Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. And additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. 
Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group Podcast Network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.